Hi, in the hills of Happy Valley, Oregon, welcome to Until We Meet Again, brought to you by the kind support of Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon, and friends like you. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. This radio broadcast is an expression of our common ground of mortality, because, after all, we are all in this together. Today's reading is 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen, they're eternal." My guest today is Melinda Gustafson Gervasi. She is an attorney of law in the lovely city of Madison, Wisconsin. She's the author of Middle, Ca- Middle Class Philanthropist How Anyone Can Leave a Legacy. And during the course of her legal practice, Melinda recognized that there was a need for clients who are working on estate planning, but they really had no obvious heir. So she thought this book would be really good for redefining the conventional view of philanthropy and also providing simple and practical tools for anyone to follow to leave their own legacy. Simple and practical, Melinda. I love it. And I also love that you run your law firm with warmth and compassion. Thank you, Elizabeth. Yeah, super special. Not everybody does that. Not everybody thinks of lawyers as people who are human, who are really kind and (laughs) and loving. And your presence, it definitely, it's effervescent. I really invited you to be on the show because you have a nice way of writing and it really puts people at ease with that prospect of leaving, leaving a legacy. I think leaving a legacy, it just sounds so foreboding. Um, I know there's many ways we can do it. We can do it by writing down family recipes and family traditions and serving as a good role model and passing down heirlooms, being a mentor, volunteering, things like that. But ultimately, since you come from a legal background, your book is talking about qualifying for leaving a legacy. And one thing I really love that your book promoted, you don't have to be a Kennedy or a Rockefeller to feel like you have something to leave behind, do you? Correct. And that's why I profiled four different people in the book who were your average middle-class person or family, and upon their death left a relatively modest bequest to a nonprofit that had a huge impact on that nonprofit. Can you give us a story of that? So someone in in real life walking down the street understands what that means. I think we think of nonprofits sometimes as something that's a foundation or somebody's fancy name is about it. Is that just merely saying, hey, I've got some extra money I'm no longer paying rent with? And wouldn't that be cool if the Red Cross has this? Well, you know, you can have your national nonprofit like the Red Cross or other huge named organizations. And then you can also have things like... um, the Sewing Project, which was a local uh, nonprofit here in um, Monona, Wisconsin, a neighbor of us in Madison. And a woman wanted to address the need of other women around the world who needed sewing machines to make a living for themselves. And the project basically had two goals. One was to gather uh, machines from people who no longer needed them and redistribute them, and also to gather supplies. Um uh, I would think of uh, materials and other things that you'd use in your sewing practice that you may no longer need or you've passed on and your loved ones want to relocate. And so she would gather those and redistribute them. So it was not only a gift to the families who had lost 
someone and they wanted to see those machines and materials continue to be used. But it was also empowering to the women who they gave them to, to allow them to be able to have a means of income for their families. So you can have something as small as that. You could have something such as a Habitat for Humanity, which is maybe based in your regional area or a food bank. There's a nonprofit for just about any cause and a complete variety of sizes. And you find, I think, that in general, Americans were huge consumers. We have never passed up a goodwill that we didn't realize was all these stuff in there that we had no idea we needed. And every garage sale, little did you know, going through a neighbor's garage is so plentiful because, wow, five cents, that's such a good deal. Why not buy 20 of them? So what mm-hmm. would you say is stored around our home that really could serve as legacy fodder that we're not even thinking about? I know we think about, oh, the, you know, dad's coin collection or grandpa's mm-hmm. rifles, but what are some other things like you're saying, the sewing machines that really have fantastic value we don't even think of. Well, I would say any sort of hobbyist equipment, um, radio equipment, woodworking equipment, photography equipment, and thinking about what kind of public schools might be able to use that equipment um, in workshops or after-school activities they might have. Um, That would be one. And then I think the other is um, actually a personal story of mine. There had been a wedding suit in my family that had been my great-grandfather's and that had been made in Sweden. And we had a picture of him in the suit, and it was the entire suit, top hat, bow tie, everything. And I contacted the Swedish museum out of Chicago, and they were thrilled to have that not only for display but for research. They didn't have hardly any many um, men's clothing from that period of time. They had ample women's wedding dresses, but we were able to donate that and no longer hung in the back of someone's closet, but it was being part of research and education um, in our region of the country. So you could have historical photographs, jewelry, um, writings, diaries. And if you think about a historical society or some sort of research institute that may be able to use those, that would be another one. And then books. We have, we're a big library family in my house, and I recently talked with the director of the Madison Community Library Foundation, and they have what's called Friends of Sales, where people in the community are downsizing, they're clearing out their clutter, and they have books they don't need or want anymore. You can donate them to a library, and the library will review them to see perhaps that's something they want to have in their permanent collection. Or if not, they'll determine, might this fetch us more dollars if we sell it online? Or can we have it at one of the walk-in library sales where, you know, you can get a book for 50 cents or a dollar? So everything from books to hobbyist equipment to historical or period items that might be used in the museum of some sort. I love your wedding suit concept. My mom gave most of her giving while she was alive and gave it to her church. And there was a sister church down in Mexico that she gave her wedding dress and my father's wedding suit to. And I remember when I was getting married, finally, I was nearly 40 years old. And I said, hey, dad, um, mom's wedding dress. I said, I'm sure it's probably not going to fit me necessarily. But can I, I was thinking maybe I could be creative and do something with it. And he said, it's gone. It's in Mexico. And he kind of explained what happened. And I guess there was this church and it was very poor and he felt like um, if they sent that off then all of the members of the church who wanted to get married and didn't have anything to wear could wear that and that actually warmed my heart it'd been neat to have my mom's dress but I thought wow all of those people who attended the church who got to wear my parents wedding clothes to get married that's super cool 
that is a really lovely story. I've never heard one that quite creative. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not only the, the reuse principle, but also just the giving heart principle. So that's lovely. Well, that's just right up your alley. So of course, you would spring to that. I love that. So if somebody wants to give cash, and how do they do that? If they say, okay, I paid off my college loans, and I've been diagnosed with something, I have this chunk of money, I don't necessarily have a child or a grandchild, I, I want to bequeath this. How does somebody get the paperwork? How do we draw this up? How do we do it? Well, first I should uh, have a disclaimer on here. Um, in my household, we always play the license plate game all summer long. I have an 11 and a 9-year-old. And so with that, my kids know there's 50 different states. Well, my listeners or your listeners need to know that there are 50 different states. And estate planning and probate laws are specific to each state. Unlike, let's say, immigration, which is a federal law, which is the same from Maine to California, estate planning will vary state to state. So um, what I would offer is some education on that, but not legal advice specific to where people might be living. Awesome. So I would say, you know, if you have um, things to give away, the most important thing for you to do is to grasp a concept of you have two types of property. People own probate property and people own non-probate property. Probate property is anything that you own that does not have a clear label or direction on it about where it would go when you die. So, for example, I'm married and we have a home, and both of our names are in the deed to the home. It is considered non-probate property because with both of our names, if one of us were to die, it would automatically pass to the survivor. So no probate is needed. It's a non-probate asset. It's what we call a direct transfer. If my husband and I were to both die, the house is then considered a probate asset because it doesn't say on the deed what happens to it when we both die. So because it would be a probate asset, one of two things would happen. If you did not have a will, your state statutes would dictate what happens to the probate property. Now, I do have a will. It would be you know, very ironic if I didn't, um, but I do have a will, and our will says what happens to uh, all of our probate property if my husband and I were to both die. So when you're looking at your assets and how you might want to distribute them, you need to know what goes in the probate pile that would be controlled by a will if you choose to execute one, and what is non-probate, meaning you can pass it directly to a person or to an entity. And those are typically things that have beneficiary forms on them retirement accounts, so your IRA, 401k, 403b, those types of things have beneficiary forms. And you can fill those out and say where the asset should go upon your death. And they usually have a primary and a secondary. So you could say, I want to leave my life insurance to my brother. But if my brother is also gone, then I want to leave it to my church. And so other things in that category, I said, are retirement accounts, life insurance, brokerage accounts, and things of that nature. And so you would just kind of, I always say the best principle is where is the money needed the most? Now, where is this going to make a difference? Um, And I think that helps guide people to know, is there a particular family member or friend that has picked a very rewarding career, but one that's not particularly um, financially uh, wealthy? And you might want to direct it to that person or person. Some people will leave it to a nonprofit and or a mixture of nonprofits. And so with a beneficiary form, you should talk to whoever you have that account with, so your life insurance company or et cetera, 
and find out how you fill out your beneficiary form. And generally, you should be able to say, I leave 25% here, 25% here, et cetera, and whatever percentage is, so long as they get up to 100%. Okay, that's very sound. That's perfect. I appreciate the way you explained that. And I love that you brought up a license plate game to really define that because you're right. You are here. You are based in the state of Wisconsin. However, you, you know, have, have lots of insight into this. So I think that's smart. And we're just getting people really to think about estate planning and all of these things. And something that I want to talk to you about desperately, because being in the funeral industry, this comes up all the time for me, is that concept of the power of attorney. This is a really mm-hmm. funky one. So a power of attorney attorney is a document which appoints someone to make legal and financial decisions on your behalf in case you are no longer to do so, but it's only Mm -hmm. while you are alive. People often say to me, oh, I am the power of attorney for Uncle Frank, but power of attorney is not a person. You are not, power isn't invested in you to be an attorney. Ultimately, it's a document which says you can make decisions. So can you give us some um, insight into that big bag of meat and potatoes? Sure, I will. Now, again, it's state-specific, so what I'm saying is sort of general. But what I explain to people is that a power of attorney is a document that says if you're alive but too sick to make your financial decision, who is in charge and a backup, and if you are alive and too sick to make your health care decision, who's in charge and who's a backup. The person who's in charge is generally called the agent, so if someone called and said, you know, hey, I'm, you know, Uncle Phil's power of attorney, no, they're the agent under the power of attorney. So you are correct, the power of attorney is a document. So again, it says who's in charge if you're alive but too sick to act. What I find interesting is people will call me and say, you know, I'm my dad's power of attorney and he died two weeks ago. And I have to correct them and say, no, you were the mm-hmm. power of attorney. Because in general, a power of attorney ends at death. And that document does not allow the agent to then continue making um, financial decisions and things of that sort um, or funeral decisions um, because the document ends with the last breath. So when people decide that they're going to have somebody serve as their power of attorney as an agent under this document, it's important for people to choose um, Mm -hmm. if they want someone to start right away if they want this to go in effect, you know, immediately upon signing the document or maybe at mm-hmm. a specific date or when they're declared incompetent. Can you speak a little bit to that for us? Sure. Um, I think what it's really important to capture here is that doing these documents really boils down to taking control of the situation. So you're the person who's best situated to know who would be responsible for your checkbook if you can't do that and who would be responsible for medical decisions if you can't do that. And it doesn't have to be the same person. So the power of attorney for finance or the similar role in healthcare can be different people. Um, so it's all about taking control. And I would say, you know, the power of attorney for finance here in Wisconsin can take effect immediately. It can take effect upon incapacity or disability. Um, and so those are the two we see. Rarely do I do one that takes effect immediately. That might be something that comes up where a person has um, the early stages of dementia. They still have capacity to do a document, but we know that the disease will be creeping up slowly, and we don't want to wait until they finally pass that threshold into incapacity and disability because they may make some pretty bad decisions along the way. So in that situation, you would want to explore the option of taking effect immediately. But in general, most of my clients say, no, I want a doctor's signature on a form 
before someone takes my ability to write a contract or deposit a check or sign my taxes is taken away. Um, so in addition to thinking about those documents and how they should take effect, I think it's crucial to think about who you're appointing. And I, I see clients who come in and they'll say, well, can I name someone other than my relatives? And of course you can. It's about taking control. You're not obligated to name you know, your, your relatives because I say that people who um, share our lives may not be the same people who share our genetics or a place on the family tree. Sometimes we have that chosen family. Especially if you have that, you want to take control and do the legal documents, giving them the rights and responsibilities you want them to have. But you also have to pick who is right for the job. Sometimes I'll have people say, well, I'll name my son because he's the firstborn. And I don't think that's the right approach. You should name him if he's suited for the job. And that really ultimately is the the client's decision. Um, But in my experience, by the age of 40, I had lost both of my parents. And I had been power of attorney or the agent under the power of attorney for them, um, both in financial and health reasons. And I would say for your power of attorney for finance, you want to name somebody you literally trust with your checkbook. Who is going to make sure that the mortgage or the rent is paid, that the taxes are filed, that will have the sophistication to deal with your retirement allocation and any like disability type of insurance? So that's one set of person. Your power of attorney for healthcare really needs to be somebody who is going to be your advocate, especially in today's healthcare world. Who is going to be on the phone at 11 o'clock on a Friday night with hospice? Who is not going to be intimidated by medical personnel and really tell them, you know, you need to slow down and explain this in a way where I can make an informed decision. You need someone who's really going to, you know, state your wishes as the patient, not just somebody who rolls into town and says, we're finally going to do things because now I'm in charge. And someone who has the time to be there, um, this can be a very intense job, and that may not always be um, feasible, but you should look for that. And I would say also someone who's not going to be crippled because you're in the ICU. You really want someone who's going to be able to keep it with them um, and be able to function well under this situation, which can be quite grave at times. That's fantastic. I think you're very clear in the way you explain that. And to add my personal little bits here, my father made the durable power of attorney, and he made this for my brother to be the financial and for me to be the healthcare. And you're darn right. My brother, I think, has guilt. And if he was dealing with what happens with cessation of life in the hospital, what do we do? He might say, well, let's just kind of wait to see what happens, because he might feel like he needs to make peace or do something else where I knew clear, well, mm-mm. My dad, he's got greater plans. He's got a cruise ship in the sky. He's he's ready. So I was probably the better person for that. So I think that is really important to think that. And it's not always the firstborn who's the boss. It's it's sometimes a quorum of people. But to get the paperwork in, in touch. And I just mentioned durable power of attorney. So that's another really important question for you. Power of attorney ceases to exist once the person living ceases to exist by being alive. What is the durable power of attorney paperwork? A durable power of attorney just means durable means it stays in effect if the person loses capacity. So you could have a power of attorney um, I drafted one one time for a person who had gone through a divorce and was going to be selling the condo here in the Madison area, but that person was moving to Canada for a job. So they did a uh, power of attorney for a specific person for a specific function, signing the closing papers for a very limited period of time. Um, that took effect just 
because we needed it at that time. Durable power of attorney means that I'm going to fill out this paperwork today, and if next week I lose capacity, the paperwork still stays in place. Very important. When people ask me, what should I do? I say, well, do the durable because what if a stroke hits or what if things happen or what if the person's no longer alive? Then again, I think a lot of times people will put somebody in charge because they're next of kin, either being a spouse, a registered domestic partner, a child, a parent, whoever. They don't want that next in line person to be the person to make choices, to dissolve their assets do all of that. They So it's really important to get somebody where the paperwork sticks because you don't want to pass away and realize, well, that son that you were not so sure about holding your checkbook now, he gets it because the durable wasn't there. Okay, so here we are. We know about important paperwork. Where should people keep their important paperwork once they've had it filled out? Well, it's going to depend on the type of paperwork you've done. So with my clients, I counsel them with their powers of attorney that they should have some copies made, hard copies, um, some that they keep in their home, you know, kind of in their personal records, because you don't want to look for a copy machine when someone's in the ICU. <laughs> you should give copies to all of the agents that you have named. So if you have a backup and a, or excuse me, an agent and a backup agent, they should each have a hard copy. Um, with a healthcare document, I recommend that it go into your um, doctor's file, so your doctor's office, into their files any specialist you might see, and if possible, your hospital of record, um, especially with things, you know, being um, e-filed and things of that sort. You know, Epic is based here in Dane County, and they've taken over medical records. Things can be scanned into your record. So you want those to be available because if we can't find the document, it's like you don't have the document. So um, in my parents' cases, their powers of attorney were in their medical files, and they were digitally accessed by the physicians, plus I had hard copies of my own. When it comes to a will, again, this is state-specific, but um, I recommend to people that you need to be able to keep it safe and sound, and I like it to be the original because that's what we're going to want when we go to file it upon death. And so, you know, at home in a fireproof and waterproof um, safe is good. I have clients who use gun safes sometimes. But here, my go-to is our court system. They actually have a safekeeping mechanism in the probate court for people who have drafted a will that's not needed yet. So, for example, that's where mine is. Mine is in a sealed envelope. It has a case number on it, the year that it was on file, and the number documented went in, and that it's uh, a will for safekeeping. No one knows what it says until it were to be opened, and it wouldn't be opened unless um, the court had received notice of my death. So I like that because their fireproof and waterproof safety is going to be better than anything I can have at home. I also don't like the idea of someone's past and the relatives come into the house and start looking at the documents and they find the will and say, huh, I don't like that. (laughs) And they shred it. Um, I guess I've read a lot of John Grisham novels, but I plan for worst case scenario. Um, And also here in Wisconsin, we now do e-filing. So when a probate needs to be opened, everything is submitted online. And if the will is already on file at the courthouse, we just check the button that says the will is in the possession of the court. Otherwise, you have to file online, and then someone has to hand-deliver the will to the court, which then needs to be matched up with the application. You know, it'll take an extra day or two, but sometimes in these situations, we want to move as rapidly as we can if the will's already on file. That's right. Is it offered in all courthouses around the country? I have no idea. Not here in Wisconsin. They do. Each county has their own kind of 
preferences and how it's filed, but Dane County, Wisconsin charges $10 one time for it to be filed per person. Hmm. So it's, it's a very affordable option and one I think that's underutilized. Yeah, and I think a lot of people think, well, I'll just draft this up. I'll get a form online. I'll write out where I want my baseball cards to go, and I will just shove this in my safety deposit box. What do you think about that? Well, the the safe deposit box contains the document that says you can get into the safe deposit box. So you're going to end up opening up an informal intestate probate to find out who has the authority to get into the safe deposit box. And let's dispel this mystery while we're here, actually, something important, and it's nice that you're a legal person who can back this up. I find families will tell me, I'm going to put my funeral plans in my last will and testament, and I'm going to put it in my safety deposit box. What says you about that? Oh, it's the worst scenario possible. Um, The reason is, well, when my father died, it was 11 o'clock on a Friday night. When my mother-in-law died, it was 11 o'clock on Christmas Eve. In both cases, the families were given one hour to make a decision about what funeral home to use. So if you have a document that's tucked away in a safe deposit box, that's never going to be accessed quick enough. And ironically, here in Wisconsin, our statutes do not assume that your next of kin can act for you if you are alive but too sick. However, upon your death, we assume statutorily that your next of kin can make your burials arrangement. So you need to say who's in charge and you need to make sure that that form is accessible. And Wisconsin has its a unique form. It's called the Authorization for Final Disposition. And I'm certain that other states out there have them. And it's sort of like your your um power of attorney that you fill out. You say who you are, who you want to be in charge, a backup. And here we can spell things out such as I want cremation or I want burial or I want religious or non religious or where to direct in lieu of flowers to a charity. And so I would research if you have that option there in your state. And if you do, you complete it and you put it in your medical file because decisions are made rapidly. Um, You can have people who are shocked and grieving. And I've heard situations where the family found uh, the decedent's wishes tucked into a Bible three months after the funeral. So it's great to have them, but they need to be I think, immediately available, given the fact at how quickly um, the death process can happen and how quickly funeral arrangements need to be made. So very important recap. Have things in your name so you can stay away from probate. Have an heir or somebody know what's going on. Let them know they are the person who will be making these choices. Have things filed in the appropriate places. Have things signed off on. Um, what else can you give us here? I want to just clarify. You just said something. Um, you only avoid probate if you don't own probate property. Ah. So a will does not avoid probate. It facilitates probate. So if you're looking to minimize or avoid probate, you're going to want to look at your assets and get as many of them or all of them into direct transfers, beneficiary forms, joint ownership, and in some cases, the living revocable trust that you hear talked about kind of on that national platform. And copies of these things, just copies can be in a safety deposit box, but a lot of times people can't access the safety deposit box until Mm -hmm. their name is on the death certificate, meaning they already went into the funeral home, they already made the plans and all of that. Well, actually, not just the death certificate. Usually they have to have what we call the domiciliary letter, which is a letter from the court saying that person 
um, is in charge of the person's estate. And so I recommend to my clients that they create a three-ring binder, you know, and have subject dividers. But instead of saying English, math, and science, they say powers of attorney, beneficiary forms, will, important people to contact. And if it just contains the copies, we don't need to worry about maybe it being destroyed in a fire or a flood. Keep it in your home in a place that's safe, but that someone could find. And, you know, if you talk to my friends, they would jokingly tell you that every time I go to take a trip, I'll email one or two of them and say, you know, if something should happen, this is where you can find my documents. You've been listening to KKPZ 1330 AM The Truth. Thank you so much to my guest, Melinda Gustafson Gervasi, and her book. She's written Middle Class Philanthropist, How Anyone Can Leave a Legacy. Until we meet again next week, be excellent to each other.